the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated clearly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. the future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Bringing Heartland America into the heart of the swamp. This is The Right Take. How is it going, everybody? Welcome, welcome, one and all, to episode number 74 here on The Right Take. I am Eric Lindrum, here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff, and we are still going all in deep dive on our new elections-based focus for the remainder of this year up until the midterm elections in early November. And for a total elections policy, elections wonk like myself, you know, politics are my blood sports. The last round of primaries that happened uh, with five states uh, a couple of weeks ago honestly could not have been better, especially if you were a supporter of President Trump and the America First agenda. There were clean sweeps for Trump endorsed candidates in several crucial states, including a state in the heart of the Rust Belt, and that is Michigan, one of the states that was crucial to President Trump's victory in 2016 and likewise was crucial to his quote unquote loss in 2020. So for this episode in particular, we are going to be focusing on the key races in Michigan, the victories that were had and the victories that are still to be had. And for this, we are bringing on another special guest, another old friend of mine dating way back from the Prager Force days of the distant year of 2015 from Michigan to tell us more about the elections in his home state, Joe Enders. Joe, welcome to The Right Take. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Welcome, Joe. 
It's great to have you on, my man, because Michigan, of course, is an important state, and you are there on the ground. You got to vote in several of the key races there, some of the key districts. So, Joe, you want to give us maybe a quick summary of the biggest races that were worth focusing on and worth uh, going forward, both the primaries that happened already and the general elections ahead of us in November? Yeah, I mean, some of the things that we should be looking at as major victories in the state of Michigan, number one, obviously, is John Gibbs unseating Peter Meyer. Uh, that was a huge victory. I mean, we're and we're talking about a solid pro-Trump America First candidate. John Gibbs is absolutely wonderful. I have not one single bad thing to say about him at all. He's in this for the right reasons. He loves America. He loves Trump. He's he believes in securing the border. He's for election integrity. He's for everything that you could possibly ask for. But beyond that, Peter Meyer, the Rhino who voted for uh, Trump's impeachment, is now gone. And now he gets to go up up against his opponent in November, and honestly, I think he's got a real chance at winning. But though though be, though redistricting is not working in his favor, it's actually viewed as I believe a D plus three right now, still within the margin of error. And honestly, I think that if he can keep the enthusiasm going, and if Biden can keep bungling the economy as he has been, it's only going to get better for him. Exactly. They they say that you know in a year that's this bad for Democrats, you know with the generic ballot lead and whatnot, just the the usual midterm trends, but also especially with as bad as things are this year, a D plus three seat could still very well go to the Republicans. So a bit of backstory on this fellow, John Gibbs. He formerly served as an assistant secretary of the in the Housing and Urban Development Agency, though that was the run one run by Ben Carson in the Trump administration for community planning and development. So he had the backing of President Trump and former Secretary Carson. And as you mentioned, Peter Mayer was one of the ones who ultimately, Peter Meyer, however his name is pronounced, I was calling him Major up to this point. You know, like It's the, Meyer because it, he's actually named after the supermarket chain. He's from that family. Oh, interesting. Did not know that. Okay, so Meyer, yep. Peter Meyer. So as you pointed out, yes, he was one of the 10 pro-impeachment weasels. And I had to notice, by the way, it's it's funny, the history of this particular district, uh, Joe, District 3, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it in 2020 handed off from one anti-Trumper to another anti-Trumper. Previously before uh, Meyer, it was that absolute loser, Justin Amash, who fancied himself like a Rand Paul or Thomas Massey type libertarian Republican. But as soon as Trump came along, he went full Spurg and went anti-Trump and switched to the libertarian party, then chose not to run for re-election because he knew he would lose. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I remember I remember listening listening to some of his tweets at the time. You know, he would complain about immigration. He would complain about all the other sorts of things that Donald Trump was saying. And and, it, and I, if I remember correctly, he was also relatively like anti Christianity while he was in office as well. Like he didn't really care too much about defending Christians' religious liberty. So I mean, there was a lot of problems that I saw with Amash and him being replaced with this guy Meyer. I mean, this is just obviously big money getting involved in politics again. If anybody knows any, just a little bit of the context about how Michigan politics works. It's important to note that like the DeVos family is the one who chooses where all the Republicans money go in the campaigns all throughout the state. So with, uh, with all that, with all that said, typically the one with the DeVos money wins. Well, in the case of John Gibbs, that was utterly rejected. That did not happen. And it was, what was even funnier about that whole thing is that Michigan right to life, the premier pro-life organization endorsed it endorsed Peter Meyer, who didn't even say he was pro-life until John Gibbs said he was pro-life. Wow. wow. Unbelievable. And they didn't say anything. And they didn't say anything about the fact that John Gibbs has always been 100% passionately pro-life. 
No questions asked whatsoever. And these are the kinds of little shenanigans that are going on. Same thing happened to uh, same thing happened with Tudor Dixon. Uh, they said that she was pro-life, but they didn't mention that any of the other Republicans running in the primary were also pro-life. These are the types of things. This is how the DeVos family like, do all these little things with their money and advertising to make sure that the candidates that they want get the exposure that they need to get into office. And, and it's no, completely national- unacceptable. Exactly. Now, the, the National Right to Life that endorsed Peter Meyer, are they – do you know if they're funded by the DeVos family not, at all? Not National Right to Life, Michigan Right to Life. Oh, Michigan Right to Life. Do you know if they receive any funding from the DeVos family at all? Oh, they do. They do. Okay. Yeah. And that, of course, is just to clarify, that's in reference to uh, Betsy DeVos, right, the former Secretary of Education? Well, the DeVos family. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of them. Right, right. So, those are right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yes, yes. The Betsy DeVos family, as in the former. And once, and, and here's the thing. Like, I'm not, I, I, I don't like Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos is, has been a, a, a major thorn in the side of Republicans in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, her education platform is, is admittedly very good. But I, I, I fail to see what else is good. <laughs> right, I, I get you. I, I, well, I remember I was thinking she was good for the longest time, but she was like the most controversial cabinet secretary. I think she was confirmed to have been a tie-breaking vote, if I recall, with uh, Mike Pence. Like, so the left hated her, but then right after January 6th, she immediately resigned from her position before the term even ended. Like, as a virtue signal, like, I don't support this, you know, incitement of insurrection, blah, 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 whatever. So, yeah, no, discount, disregard anything Betsy DeVos says. And you well, The mentioned- left hates oh. Betsy DeVos because the, the left hates Betsy DeVos because she's big money. That's why they don't like her. And honestly, I kind kind of, yeah, and Mm -hmm. I kind of agree with, I kind of agree with them on that. So, you know what, like, whatever, like he, like, like that's the type, that's the type of big money, you know, uh, uh, type of, type of Republican that tries to keep the party from getting too Republican. That's the type of, or too conservative. That, those are the types that I don't like. She's very, she's very measured. She's very, uh, She's very ball ballroom proper fancy you know upper class Republican. That's not the type of that's not the type of Republican that you're going to want in the office. You want grassroots. You want America first. You know you want you want somebody that goes up there and talks to you like a normal human being, like Donald Trump, not like you're at a cocktail party eating you know Cornish hens with a side <laughs> of mashed potatoes. <laughs> Bingo. I do want to make one point about DeVos's, uh support for Michigan Right to Life because you see this a lot on the left. You'll have these quote-unquote grassroots organizations for climate, for pro-choice causes, for other things, and you look at the funding. You trace the money, and it's usually a big left-wing billionaire who's funding 90% of that so-called grassroots operation. And the purpose of selling it as a grassroots is to use that as an issue wedge to push the party to back candidates that support the corporate rights of these billionaires who are supporting those those organizations. So you take the pro-life issue, you'll have a pro-life organization that sells itself as being grassroots, and there's a big money donor behind it that funds most of it, and their purpose is to guide the pro-life movement toward the big, the pro-corporate Republicans. Yeah, and and you know, I, I think I think you remember this, Eric, when I got fired from Protect Life Michigan back in, I think it was like 2018. 2019 I think 2019 or 2018 or something like that I was fired I, I got fired from this place for um, for saying that I was against uh, what did I say I was against a woman um, employing a nanny to raise her child for her that's what it was I was about employing a nanny to raise her child for her and I said something on, about it to a woman on Facebook I said look don't have kids if you want to be a lawyer and not raise your children and pay somebody else to do it that was my only point I was like I personally don't find that to be pro-family I don't find that 
to be conservative. I don't find that to be anything that's going to benefit America in the slightest. You know, we don't need more women lawyers. We need more mothers. We need great mothers. We need the best mothers that we could possibly have to raise the best children they possibly could to do the best job that they possibly can in the United States of America. Make Sorry, I do think that unapologetically. That's the pro-life position. <laughs> exactly. That is the pro-life it's position. Pro-life, it's pro-tradition. Make mothers great again. I like it. Make Let's get behind that. Make mothers great again. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I all of a sudden got a call from this Protect Life Michigan group. I didn't look into their donors enough to do this. I can't say Betsy DeVos is a donor, but she has her hand in the pot of a lot of different things in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So I suspect that that might be the case. Um, but but essentially what, what was what was what was said was is like, well, we're, we sell ourselves as a pro woman organization. I was like, oh, well, good. I'm pro woman. I'm pro mother. Exactly, and they they didn't have a problem. They, they had a, they had a major problem with it, and they and they wound up canning me over it. And ever since then, no matter I I was how I was unemployed for like a year and a half. I applied to over five hundred different conservative organizations, and not one of them gave me a call back. And I'm like, okay. I know what's happened here. I've been blacklisted. Betsy's been making some calls. It seems, yeah, or, or whichever to boss, maybe yeah, someone to boss, yeah, whichever. Who, who, Oh, well, sorry, that's Michigan politics. Say, Basically. Yeah, I was just going to say that's how the billionaires in both parties control the trajectory of the ideologies of both parties. They have they fund the grassroots organizations and then they blacklist activists who go against the grain. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And 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 typically, what they mean by the activists that get blacklisted, it's typically just the ones that are remotely effective. Because once again, they think that the only possible way somebody can be effective is if they're able to talk to donors in a kind, nuanced, and un and an undisruptive way at their little dinner parties. Those are the people that they believe are effective because they're not out they're not out there doing the grassroots work. They're not out there with their picket signs or their megaphones or any of those things. They're they're cowards that are sitting in banquet halls most of their lives and thinking that that's how you change the trajectory of politics. They have no interest in the people. They have no interest in what's best for everybody else, and that's precisely why the Republican Party is so darn boring and the Democrats are so darn exciting. Because they don't take that same viewpoint. Yes, they have billionaires, but the billionaires kind of, you know, they'll push the people in what direction they want to go by making them excited, fanatical, disruptive, and mischievous. Exactly. Well, I remember whenever I first went to D.C., we were at a uh, like an interest meeting where someone was coming in trying to coach us how to get a job, how to go to interviews, what to say. And they basically told us up front, now I realize that almost everyone in this room wants to work in research and writing and you're activist and you're gung-ho about moving the Overton window to the right. But I'm just going to be honest with you. If you want a job, go into development. Like they were like, I'm just, that's just the way it is. You want a job, go into development. Talk to donors, get money for these organizations because that's who they're hiring. Okay. Well, and that's the problem too. That's the problem too. It's like it's like, oh, you're passionate about politics. Oh, you have well-developed opinions. Oh, you really do care about what you believe. Why is that not even part of the conversation in what in, in who we're employing to be political leaders that shape our strategic institutions in the years to come? Bingo. You uh, you nailed it on the head there with that one, Joe. In, in a lot of sense, in a lot of ways, it makes it sound like, you know, the Michigan Republican Party is very much a microcosm of the problems with the broader national GOP. You know, the boring policy wonks, the bow tie wearing nerds who want to talk about the debt to GDP ratio, while Democrats are the ones with their foot soldiers yeah. out there burning down half of America because, you know, they realize that this is a fight for a much greater societal civilizational crisis not you know what we want this particular tax cut if i may bring us back real quick 
to the race we were talking about before we got into that excellent discussion we had. And believe me, guys, there will be a lot more of that to come in this episode. But I just had to summarize this. This is one more fascinating point. I love this aspect of the story. So in this race of Gibbs versus uh, Meyer, the interestingly enough, one of Gibbs's biggest supporters was the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. That's basically the House of Representatives arm of the Democratic Party, campaign arm of the Democratic Party. They spent... so close to half a million on television ads that were supposedly attack ads against Gibbs, claiming he was too conservative, too pro-Trump, blah, 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 with the idea being that it would be reverse psychology for the Republican voters of the district to say, oh, he's the conservative, we like him. So it was basically an attempt to boost his campaign against Meyer ostensibly because they think Gibbs is the easier candidate to beat because he's too radical. Jacob and I talked about this previously with the uh, the reaction to the Georgia primaries, where, of course, articles were going out all around the mainstream media saying, aha, Democrats are killing Trump's perfect endorsement record because they're switching over to the Republican primary to vote against Trump's candidates because they want to own Blump. They want to own the orange man. But now here we are turning around. They're saying, oh, no, no, we support Trump's endorsed candidates because they're radical and they'll lose. Once again, proving that Democrats absolutely cannot even agree on their own strategy again jacob and i agreed that previous attempt at making it seem like they ruled the georgia primaries was just a cope to deal with how badly they're losing overall but joe you sound you and i were talking about this off the air you sound confident that that ultimately will backfire on the democrats in the worst way possible come november yeah look i mean when i'm when i look at the john gibbs race i do think that he is going to do a lot better because he's going to have voter enthusiasm behind him Mm -hmm. and voter enthusiasm whether the democrats want to admit it or not is what wins elections and i think that they know this because that's why they sensationalize everything every single thing that the mainstream media puts out about specific stories has always been to hype up democrats and make them very angry and overexcited because it gets them out to the polls and gets them to go and vote for the candidates that they want elected and it's a very clever strategy it worked extremely well trump turned that whole thing over on its head in 2016 with his campaign by forcing them to do nothing but run negative ads the whole time and spent like over a billion dollars in free advertising for the trump campaign he's he's racist because he said there's mexicans illegally coming over the border and everybody saw that and they're like well, that is happening. It's true. He's got to stop that. That's good. I need to vote for him. So they got a bunch of free campaign advertising all throughout 2016. It sounds like the same thing's happening over here with John Gibbs. See, the reverse psychology, it's exactly what happened with Trump, and it's going to shoot them in the foot in this election, especially you know, when you look at the redistricting, what they added was Muskegon County, and Muskegon County is blue, but it has a very sizable white working class population. And that white working class population that's hearing all these, oh, he's an extremist, oh, he likes Trump's immigration platform, that's going to get all those guys to go out and vote. So, like, come on, dummies, like, this is actually good. Having Peter Meyer go up, who's going to be excited about the grocery store guy? You know what I mean? (laughs) Who's going to be excited about the grocery store guy that voted to impeach the only president these guys, these white working class people have ever trusted? Mm -hmm. That is so true. It's not going to it's it is not going to fare well for them. If they win, it just shows that the redistricting was just too much for them to over for for them to overcome. Um, I, who's he going up against? I think it's Hillary Hillary, Hillary Shulton. Uh, Shulton Shulton. Yeah, that's right. And she ran unopposed. And we'll, we'll we'll see how she does. I do not see her flipping the seat. I just don't. I love John Gibbs as a candidate. And and as I said before, I mean, I just see those. I see him having way more enthusiasm behind him than anyone else. 
And remind me, what is the what is the uh, party numbers like? Is it D plus two? You said D plus three. D plus three. D plus three. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't see her flipping that. Yeah, that absolutely. Again, if the trends hold steady with how anti the anti democrat sentiment with you know inflation and everything, Biden's foreign policy failures, everything that is approval ratings that all continues to hold steady, then yeah, any seat that is D plus three is absolutely in danger of flipping. And on that note, I had to end that discussion with just one last thing. I saw a hilarious op ed from USA Today. Uh, whining and complaining about this this Gibbs promotion headline quote Democrats should hang their heads in shame for helping take down a principled Republican <laughs> it's by a woman named Ingrid Jacques uh, you know I'm, I'm just like I, I I will come let's come back to that after he wins and of course you better believe she's going to write a follow-up if he wins like say oh see I was right I was right because in a way yeah this absolutely is going to backfire on them but again that's good for us and bad for them which I just and I love seeing already the tears the cope coming from those who she seems a little more sensible she's whining about it but she is sensible in that like yeah this could backfire you absolutely could get this guy elected so godspeed to you John Gibbs and let's see you take that seat and let's get another base America first candidate a politician elected to the House of Representatives. There's just one thing I'd like to add on that, too, sure. is that what's, what the, the best part, they, they used the secret word, the principled conservative, the principled Republican. Trademark. <laughs> I've talked about I've talked I've talked about this quite a bit. Anybody who unironically uses the word principled conservative is backhandedly trying to say this is the type of guy that will backstab you. Uh, on 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 any issue that actually matters and advances the future of the party. Yeah, it became. A that's little... what principled conservative means. If you ever well, hear want... that about any person, that's a bad sign. Yeah, they want people like Peter Meyer and Liz Cheney. They need three or four Republicans like that so they have somebody to invite on to CNN. That's that's the only right. thing that those people are good for. They just want someone they can invite on to CNN that can bash their party. Exactly. So CNN could say, "Oh, see, we have a Republican." You know, the View. They or just replace... bipartisan. Exactly. The View just replaced Megan McCain with Anna Navarro. Say, "See, we have a Republican commentator now, even though she has not been a Republican for years." But yeah, principle. The principles became a buzzword. Joe, you remember these from our Prager Force days, way back in 2015, right? That became the buzzword for people. People who didn't like Trump. They talked about, oh, he's not Ronald Reagan. He's not a principled conservative. He'll suck if he's elected. It's a buzzword that doesn't mean anything. Because when you ask him, oh, really, what are these principles? You know, what do you mean by not principled? By principled, do you mean the president who appointed three conservative uh, justices to the Supreme Court that finally overturned Roe v. Wade after half a century? That kind of principle? Of course, they, they have no response to that, of course. They, they can't acknowledge, they can't stand the fact that Trump is the new gold standard of conservatism. And yes, is a more principled conservative unironically than any of these past losers of the republican party standard bearers from romney to mccain to the bush family they can't stand that and they realize it ultimately should and can be used more against them at this point than used for them in their arguments against trump so i want to move on to one other interesting congressional district race here and i believe this is your home district right joe tell us about district 10 Oh yeah, it sure is. I got to, and by the way, let me add that uh, as as Salon so graciously um, bestowed a title upon me of white nationalist, <laughs> I would like to say that this white nationalist voted for uh, John James in District 10, and John James won his primary. Let's go. Super excited about this. John James gets a lot of flack from you know some of the further right guys. I love John James. I think he's great. What has he done that isn't great? 
I am I'm very confused by that sort by that sort of talk coming from coming from uh, a, a lot of the conservatives on the right. They're like, he didn't do a lot to fight election integrity. What are you talking about? The day after the election, his campaign was like 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 complaining like loudly. It was on. There's a Fox News article about it talking about how upset he was, and he's saying he was robbed. And by the way, he was robbed of the election in Michigan. He was robbed of his Senate campaign when he ran in 2020. So to see him overcoming that and winning his primary in spectacular fashion, he got 86% of the vote, as opposed to his opponent, Tony Marcinowitz, who got 13.7% of the vote. I mean, you're, you're really seeing that this guy is a, rising, is a rising star. There's only one questionable thing about him, and that's his proximity and support unwaveringly from Nikki Haley. Mm. And that tells me that there might be some connection to the military-industrial complex. There might be some rhino, pro-war things about him, this, that, and the other. And, and at the end of the day, I have to just scratch that up to say, look, nobody's perfect. You got my vote. Exactly. And he's yeah. an Iraq war veteran, so they're – you know, it's yeah. I, I get a, you know, if you fault in Iraq, I, I, it can be difficult to go back and say, you know, what we did was wrong. Whenever you saw your buddies well, get killed, you know, yeah. Even more that. important, what we did was a waste of time. That's yeah. that's what that's that's how a lot of them would view saying like the Iraq War was a mistake. It's like, oh, so I went there for nothing. Yeah, that's a really but, hard emotional thing to overcome. But, Exactly. But yeah, I'm sorry to sorry to break it to you, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the truth. But yeah, John James, uh, we did an election uh, post election coverage state by state. I came to the conclusion that Biden legitimately won Michigan, but John James was legitimately robbed. That was my after we um, dove into that. So yeah, I, I think John James was definitely robbed of his Senate race in 2020. Exactly. Yeah, especially yeah, considering there was there, here's here's the problem though is that you would you would never be able to figure that out because one of the things that happened in Michigan was uh, Jocelyn Benson, which is the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. was um jo- Jocelyn Jocelyn Benson opened online ballot applications. That's a hundred percent illegal in the state of Michigan. So you don't know how many people applied for ballots that other otherwise wouldn't have had that happen. Mm-hmm. So that's the point that I'm getting at is like I think Trump was robbed too. I don't I do. I really do because there is unknown hundreds of thousands of people that did these online applications and ha- online applications for ballots that had them then mailed to their house. How are you supposed to verify that? Mm-hmm. How are you supposed to verify an online ballot application? Exactly. You know? That that's where um, it gets so fuzzy because these were is when people talk about voter fraud and this was something again Jacob and I did talk about in our six part election series on 2020. When we talk voter fraud, are we talking the old school Chicago machine mayor daily stuffing the ballots, you know, putting in ballots no. with dead people's names on them? Like is that kind of fraud was that kind of fraud alone enough to steal 2020? Probably not. It's probably not to steal any election unless it's, you know, the 2000 election or that uh, Minnesota election where Al Franken narrowly won. But in this case, yeah, it's a broader sense of fraud like, yeah, secretaries of state, unilaterally. Illegal, the point is, is illegal voting that 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 illegal voting measures and votes that were cast illegally in violation of state statutes mm-hmm. and, you know, a violation of state statutes and the state legislature who the Constitution grants authority over conducting elections to. You know, when you look at it in that broader respect, illegal votes are still fraudulent votes. Yes. Illegal votes are still fraudulent votes. If you looked at the Cyber Ninja, if you looked at the Cyber Ninja's audit into Arizona, you'd see 55,000 fraudulent ballots. You know, uh, well, they should they said questionable ballots, but that means that ballots that were questionably cast like like illegally. 
against state statutes. You had Jim Troopas bring forward a, a lawsuit in the state in the state of uh, state of Wisconsin that was thrown out on a latches claim, and that latches claim was was uh, was e- was even believed by the by the uh, by the Chief Justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. She dissented from the rest of the court's opinion, and the court was obviously, you know. A, half Democrat with one wishy-washy Republican and the one wishy-washy Republican just didn't want to hear it because he didn't want to be the one responsible for, you know, investigating election fraud. Exactly. Spineless judges who played a huge role in it all the way up to the Supreme Court with Texas v. Pennsylvania. That, of course, you bring us to a very important point is that ultimately Michigan was stolen in 2020 uh, for both Trump and John James because in 2018, they saw a change in executive leadership. Rick Snyder was term limited out, I believe, and he was replaced by the woman who is now running for re-election. And that is the marquee race here in Michigan. We have to talk about this one. Gretchen Whitler herself, excuse me, Gretchen Whitmer, who is, uh, I am of the opinion, and Joe, feel free to chime in here, uh, as you, as a Michigan resident, I think she is the single most authoritarian governor in the nation right now. And I think that primary that we just went through is perfect proof of that. She had five of her opponents, including the original frontrunner, James Craig, the former uh, police chief of Detroit, kicked off the ballot for ineligibility reasons. And then after that, the polls showed another frontrunner for the nomination by the name of Ryan Kelly. She has her goons at the FBI arrest him for January 6th charges a year and a half later. Yeah, right. So then that primary finally culminates. We have our nominee now. You mentioned her earlier, Joe. Uh, Give us, of course, your insight into that gubernatorial primary, who you supported, and what you think will ultimately happen now come November. Look, I mean... uh, there, there, there's a lot of things that I look for in candidates, but 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 there was a lot of respect that I had for Ryan Kelly. Ryan Kelly came to Church Militant, the media apostolate that I work for. It's a Catholic media apostolate. Mm-hmm. One, he's a faithful Catholic. He does go, to, you know, he goes to mass on Sunday. He has a family. He believes the teachings of the Catholic Church. He's extremely pro-life, and and not only that, he's also extremely conservative. Um, and, 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 you know, just seeing him humble himself to go to a media apostolate that's labeled a falsely, mind you, labeled an SPLC hate group because we uphold the teachings of the Catholic Church on homosexuality, uh, that, you know, he, he was brave enough to go and do that despite that. I see a leader in somebody that's willing to do something like that, somebody that's really unafraid of the leftist machine, you know, and, and, you know, to see, to see him just get, just, just get like railroaded like that you know he was up he was i saw him up four points in polls in like march he Mm -hmm. was up four points over his 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 main opponent which was tudor dixon and then he got arrested he got arrested out of nowhere yeah yeah, out of nowhere i was like which you're waiting till right before his election to arrest him he wasn't on the list before why didn't you take him and by the way he was not he, he wasn't rioting he wasn't doing anything there was there was nothing of the sort going on in regard to ryan kelly he was outside of the building for as far as as far as i'm aware the entire time and this was an open and shut case when he was brought when he was brought in and and now and then he then it was too late he did horrible in the primary how did a front runner go to fourth place well, because yeah, it doesn't I, make any sense. I, I, I can't I can't get that. I don't understand what, what went on there. I remember hearing talk about Tudor Dixon going into the primary even before the whole Ryan Kelly thing happened, because, of course, she is a commentator from uh, Real America's Voice. It's one of those, uh, you know, alternatives to Fox News. They host uh, Steve Bannon's War Room podcast, I believe. She's a commentator with them. I never heard of her before. I mean, I'm and I'm faintly familiar with RAV, but she had that kind of that media. It, it, it's kind of like one of those RSBN types outlets. So, so she had an audience with her. 
And uh, I guess that may have played a role in her ultimately getting Trump's endorsement. And that probably that could very well be what carried her over the finish line is the Trump endorsement, because, again, Michigan, like Arizona, was a state where all of Trump's endorsed candidates had a clean sweep throughout the whole state. But I understand what you're saying. Certainly, you, you voice some concerns about Tudor Dixon in comparison to Ryan Kelly. Full disclosure, if I lived in Michigan, I like you, I would have voted for Ryan Kelly 100 percent. I seen that platform her own. And the fact she saw Whitmer saw him as such a threat, she had to have him arrested. It's no secret she's colluding with the FBI. She worked with the FBI to set up that whole fake kidnapping hoax to boost her popularity. And when I saw that, by the way, one of the one of the guys, one of the guys in charge of the the guy in charge of the Detroit field office, he got promoted. Cruz actually (laughs) taught me this. He's now in charge of the D.C. field office that's conducting the January 6th investigation. Yep. The guy who had his own agents form a conspiracy (laughs) plot to arrest arrest the governor of Michigan is now handling the January 6th cases. Christopher Ray admitted that under oath. Nixon could have only dreamed of going that full-throated partisan and using the government for partisan advantage Shoot, even uh, you no know, but it just tells you how plugged in whitmer is oh whitmer yeah Whitmer is extremely plugged in. she's an extremely savage savvy politician and she's savage she i mean she goes for the jugular uh, and, and in all in all honesty i wish we had somebody like her on our side Oh, 100 percent. Can you imagine if like if Carrie Lake serves like that as governor of Arizona? Oh, my goodness gracious. But yeah, even J. Edgar Hoover can compare to that. And I was thinking I'm going to make the comparison. I, of course, I made the joke earlier comparing it to Hitler. You know, you with the Nazis, you had the Reichstag fire, which to this day, we you know people say that could have been a, a false flag by the Nazis to consolidate their political power. But even Hitler didn't go so far as to orchestrate a fake assassination attempt against himself to boost his popularity. That's essentially what Whitmer just did. She created a fake kidnapping against her to boost her popularity knowing because especially with the covid lockdowns she was, she was one of the worst with the covid lockdowns you know her husband went to like a boat rental service on a lake when the whole thing was shut down you know no boats out on the lake covid lockdowns due to governor whitmer and her husband is like you know who i am you know who my wife is you're gonna give me a boat so like like totally complete dictator and again nukes over half of the primary field kicks five of her opponents including the frontrunner james craig in the polls was the original frontrunner for the nomination and the general election polls showed him beating whitmer and he very well could have and then ryan kelly the next frontrunner boom you know he's arrested by the fbi so now tudor dixon was the one who ultimately rose from the ashes after everybody else got completely obliterated what's next is uh is tudor dixon gonna show up uh dead of a suicide from two gunshot wounds in the back of the head you know i mean because i mean i wouldn't be surprised that i can tell i can tell you that that's not gonna happen because she's got all the betsy devos money behind her ah okay okay so um do you so uh, clearly you have your concerns about tudor dixon feel free to express your concerns and tell us why she's not the ideal candidate overall and if, if you think she still ultimately may win or not I think ultimately she can still win. However, I think that she is not going to bring the energy that Garrett Saldano or Ryan Kelly would have brought to the table. I mean, obviously Kevin Rinke is just a total piece of crap and and, 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 and just some billionaire that thinks that if he spends a billion dollars, he can be governor. Um, you know, those sorts of things. I mean, obviously, yeah, no. Kevin Rinke, bad news. Tudor Dixon is literally like, you know, like 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 the Boris Johnson choice, you know, if you Ooh. want to use a kind of a comparison. Interesting. Um, she's she she was she was like an actress actually in horror movies. Wait, really? Yeah, so got... she played a lesbian vampire oh, in one, and there's and there's scenes of her getting like eaten to death, and gory scenes about zombies and stuff, it, like zombie movies and all sorts of other weird stuff, like ripped to pieces and stuff like that. And I'm just like, you know, I really don't know that this is like 
a person that would make a good governor, especially when her entire platform is creating a more wholesome curriculum in schools for children. <laughs> Meanwhile, here she is getting ripped to pieces by zombies. Here she is playing, from what I understand, I'm not sure, I haven't watched it, I don't know, but from this is what I've heard, is that she played a lesbian vampire. She definitely did play a vampire. I did look that up. It was on IMDb. <laughs> She played a vampire, and uh, and and yeah, I believe I'm told it was a lesbian vampire. So I'm like, great. So the champion, the champion of Christian, you know, of Christianity and Christian values in in you know Michigan, our our gubernatorial candidate, the one who's going to take out the evil and demonic, you know, Gretchen Whitmer that destroyed businesses and and basically you know played played her part as as a complete dictator for her entire time in charge is is going to be Tudor Dixon. I mean, I don't know. There's one benefit that I see to running Tudor Dixon over all the others, and that's the fact that she's a woman running against a woman Mm -hmm. right after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And I guarantee you that that's what Trump had in mind. Trump was Trump was staying out of it, though. He was looking at polls. He was waiting to endorse the person that was going to win. He didn't want to have any part of endorsing anybody in this. You can kind of tell because he waited till what, two days before one day before the primary to actually drop his endorsement. Oh, I didn't realize it was that quickly. Yeah, I mean, it was it was. Very quick. I got the notification days before my election. It was days before the primary. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Because I was going to so say – Tudor Dixon wasn't a definite yes from Trump. Right, right. Because, I mean, I remember the only other time I recall Trump doing that, like he, I remember he did a same-day endorsement uh, in the Wyoming governor's race in 2018 when he had suddenly announced his support for Foster Freeze, the the billionaire, um, like literally the day of the primary. And it was a little too, too much too late at that point. Freeze ultimately did lose the nomination. But, like, yeah, usually when Trump waits that long – um, it's something like you get something like the Missouri endorsement. It means he's not so. No, it means he's not so crazy about the person. Right. Yeah. That's what that means. He wasn't so crazy about Eric Greitens, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, he wasn't so crazy about Eric Schmidt. He didn't really know which one to pick. They were both they, they were both policy wise solid. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't. I haven't done much research into the allegations against Greitens, whether they're true, whether he's been completely exonerated, whether there's you know whether those things can be proven or not proven. But you know. I mean, either way, I don't want somebody with that type of media baggage on his back going in to run for the primary. Otherwise, you're going to run into another Roy Moore situation where you have a guy who's right on all the policy, who's right on all the policy, is actually the better candidate on policy, but still winds up losing, you know, because of the scandals that he had. Exactly. Yeah, I, I still I'm kind of blown away by what you mentioned about Tudor Dixon being an actress in like vampire movies. Like it reminds me of uh, you remember Mindy Robinson. You, you remember her, Joe? Like the uh, the she's she previously acted in like like smut music videos and stuff and then became like a conservative, like, you know, MAGA girl personality on Twitter. And she ran for Congress in Nevada in 2020. And I'm just like, it's similar things like these people I swear people who come out of nowhere like that and just grift off of the MAGA movement because they know it'll get them followers and it'll get them, you know, a spot on, you know. OAN or something one day and it's just you, you gotta watch out for these people you gotta watch out for people who are not solid who are just in it because it's the trendy thing right now and even if she does get elected great if she gets elected obviously I prefer that over Whitmer if she ends up suddenly being above average like say a Youngkin I'd be fine with that I mean do I expect her to be another Ron DeSantis certainly not um like do I expect her to be as good as say Carrie Lake would be in Arizona no but like it's I I understand like certainly you and I have had plenty of arguments about this in the past Joe about like you know you know choosing a candidate who is like you know not perfect not ideologically perfect but still close to good and like likely to win versus you know a candidate who is 100% pure but like you know has absolutely no chance that kind of thing so Michigan, it just, and again, Michigan, that governor's race turned out the way it did. Yeah, but Michigan, but Michigan would have been one. Here's the here's the problem I have with this. Michigan's one of the few states that that enthusiasm really affects. 
Right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a huge shy Trump vote in Michigan. There's a huge shy Trump vote in Pennsylvania. And there's a huge shy Trump vote in Wisconsin. Right. You know, and, and not running somebody that's the most exciting person in the race is going to screw you over in those sorts of states because Republicans are going to stay home. Now, to be fair, Tudor Dixon is not the most uninteresting candidate in the world. I mean, she does have a very solid conservative platform, but I mean, so, so did George W. Bush, didn't he? You know, he had a very solid conservative platform. And how did that turn out? These are the types of things that I kind of worry about with with candidates like these is what are we getting? What are we getting into? The platform's nice, but what about the person? Exactly. It's always concerning when you look at who their supporters are and their supporters are bad news. Usually you can judge a candidate and not all the time. A lot of times you can judge them by who who supports them, who donates to them. Yeah, and, and, and in this case, the, the DeVosses are big donors to her, which means that she's probably going to do a great job on education and pretty much nothing else. If I may ask then for just a little bit of speculative history from you, Joe, going back to the original primary field as it stood, assuming Whitmer doesn't pull any of her fascist tricks on the whole field, and it played out the way the polls originally said, had James Craig been the nominee, do you think he would have had a good chance, and or do you think he would have been a good governor? I think he would have certainly won, but I don't know if he would have been a... He wouldn't have, he's not, he's not extremely pro-life and he's still, he's, Mm. he's, he's still a Detroit, he's still a Detroit urbanite. I mean, I don't know what to say, you know, he is, he's still, he, he wouldn't have been Republican on, uh, super Republican on anything. And I don't see him as being a warrior on uh, Christian social issues that matter, you know, to a lot of the people that want to see the right advance in the culture war, where he'd be good at is Black Lives Matter. He'd be really good. He'd be really good with crime. Law and order. Yeah, law and order, all those sorts of things. We would have gotten a lot of great stuff with Craig, but on on the social issues, I don't think he cared enough. Yeah. But but on the flip side with Ryan, with, with Ryan Kelly, I think we would have gotten a bit more of the, a bit more Liberty Gospel, which is I'm not for at all. Um, I don't like I don't like liberty gospel candidates. I don't like free dumb candidates. Like that, there, there's got to be more to your campaign than that. It's exactly what's hurt the Republican Party for the longest time. However, he is a hundred percent in line on the social issues, even if he wasn't talking about them as passionately as he could. All right. And on that note, though, we wanted to go ahead and talk about another important set of primaries that happened on Tuesday that Joe as well has some very interesting thoughts on. And Jacob, you actually have some insight about this is in relation, of course, to the last coast, uh, the last state on the West Coast that hadn't yet had their primaries. And that is Washington State. And boy, oh boy, for a blue state, there's a lot to talk about here. So first, let's go down the line here. They had their Senate primary election as well. And this is one that I just don't understand for some reason. Politico had a story the other day saying that the Senate GOP dumped a lot more uh, money into campaign ads in two blue states, Colorado and Washington, saying that they see potential pickup opportunities. That, of course, is incumbent Democrat Patty Murray, who made it to the runoff, came in first place. Because remember, Washington, like California, like Louisiana and a few others, that's a state with a top two jungle primary system, blanket primary, where all candidates run Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, whatever, you know the Constitution Party, they all run in one primary and the top two candidates, regardless of party, go to the general election. So Patty Murray came in first with Republican Tiffany Smiley uh, in second. So that will be Democrat versus Republican. Uh, What do you guys think? Because everyone's saying like, oh, this could be a sleeper hit pickup for the GOP. I'm thinking even in a really good year like this year is looking to be for the Republicans. I don't think they pick up this seat at all. Uh, Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the Senate, right? Uh, Yeah, the U.S. Senate. 
Yeah, yeah, you're looking at the Senate. I mean, like I, I was when I was following that race. So just look at you, all you need to do is look at the numbers in the primary right now. Look at the turnout in the primary. Look how many voted for Patty Murray. Nine hundred forty thousand four hundred fifty-six votes for her. She got fifty-three point one percent of the vote. Tiffany Smiley, the second-place Republican, got five hundred eighty-six thousand eight hundred sixty-two votes. That's thirty-three point two percent. That is a twenty-point difference. Mm-hmm. Now, even if you were to add in every single other Republican that was running in this entire state, even if you added in the independent on top of it, you would still be at least 200,000 votes shy of what you would need to win. Now, if you think that somehow that this person's going to just come out of nowhere and, and, and overcome a 200,000 vote discrepancy in, in, in a race, you're high. I don't know what else to say. There's not a chance. There is not a chance that this Senate seat is overturned at all. It is a hard Democrat state. You're talking about Washington. You'd have a better chance of electing Darren Bailey in Illinois. <laughs> that's all. Yeah, oh, that's and, so true. And, and to be realistic, in 2016, when Trump won, uh, Patty Murray won with 59 percent of the vote. So it, I mean, there's the historic trend as well. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, we, that's what I predict. I predict. I predict an 11 point, an 11 point difference. So we could just dismiss that as you know the Republican establishment's wishful thinking. Like, if nothing else, I would understand the idea of oh, spend money in a safe blue sea, so Democrats are forced to spend more of their resources there instead of battlegrounds. Like, but at that point, you're both spending equal amounts. You're just canceling each other out. There's no point. Focus on the seats you have to hold because there's some tough them, seats. I'd, I'd, I'd rather them just throw their money at other races that are that matter. Exactly. Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina. Those are the seats we need to hold. Um, yeah. So now working our way down to the House here. This was important because in Washington, there were just like Michigan, there were two pro-impeachment Republicans in the House of Representatives from Washington. Uh, in Michigan, of course, we talked about it was Peter Mayer. And another one, of course, was um, Fred Upton, who announced he was uh, retiring. He's not going to run for re-election, so he's out. But in Washington, you had... Dan Newhouse and Jamie Herrera Butler in in uh, districts four and three respectively. District four. Let's go over this one first uh, because oh, this this irritates the hell out of me. As a former Republic, uh, uh, California Republican, by the way, lifelong Californian, they ran into the same problem there that you have in the California Republican Party. So Dan Newhouse is the incumbent. He voted for impeachment. The base overwhelmingly wants him gone. President Trump ultimately does issue his endorsement for a guy by the name of Lauren Culp who was the former police chief of the city of Republic, a U.S. Army veteran, and also was the gubernatorial nominee in Washington in 2020 against Jay Inslee. So Trump endorsed him early on, and he was seen as kind of the front runner, right, against Culp. And again, in a top two primary system, could very well have advanced to the general with either Culp or the Democratic candidate. Unfortunately for Culp, there were five other Republican candidates running, including a state representative by the name of Brad Clippert and a former NASCAR driver by the name of Jared Sessler, okay, in Washington of all states instead of a a state like Tennessee. I don't know. Why not? Uh, But bottom line, you have six Republicans running against the impeachment, pro-impeachment incumbent, and you have one Democrat candidate in the whole primary, Doug White. So what do you think happened? Of course, Doug White ultimately managed to advance to the runoff, the Democrat, And Dan Newhouse did, in fact, make it to the runoff as well. Very narrow margin. It was like Newhouse 25.5 versus White's 25.4. Culp was ultimately in third with 21.1. So when you combine the percentages of all the other, the six Republican candidates, 
That's 49% of the vote. If they had just consolidated behind Culp or any other opposition candidate, Newhouse would have been crushed. And it very well, it could have been the opposition candidate versus Newhouse. It could have been the pro-Trump candidate versus the Democrat Doug White. But the point is, this is a problem the Republican Party has and doesn't seem to get. The word is consolidation. You see so many races where Democrats see there's too many Democrats running and they quickly encourage, you know, a fellow Democrat to drop out so they can consolidate their vote behind their candidate. See election in 2020. Oh. Was, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2020 when Obama kicked them all out and told him Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. Exactly. You had Buttigieg and Klobuchar drop out at the exact same time to consolidate the establishment vote behind Biden while Warren stayed in to siphon socialist grassroots votes away from Bernie. And this the Democrats are very good at that. We saw that in Jamie Butler's district. We'll come to that in just a bit. Um, where Democrats, one Democrat dropped out to endorse the other one. So a single Democrat was left in the race to go to the runoff. Republicans, on the other hand, do not get this. My former congressman, David Valadeo, same thing. He had two challengers, Chris Mathis and Adam Medeiros. Their vote total combined was about 29%. Valadeo got 25%. So if it had been just one candidate against Valadeo, Chris Mathis preferably, he would have advanced to the runoff against the Democrat. In that same race, you had two Democrats running. One of the Democrats dropped out and endorsed Rudy Salas, who was the front runner, who made it to the runoff. In California this year, this year in 2022, there is a state Senate district, state Senate District 4, a safe red seat. Six Republicans ran against two Democrats. What do you think happened? The two Democrats made it to the runoff. That is a safe red seat that is now going to be blue for at least four years in the state Senate because Republicans couldn't get their act together. Democrats are good at this. Republicans suck at this. And I just I need a reality check here, guys. Like, do you think there's any chance the Republicans will finally get their act together after something like this and realize we could win winnable races if we put our egos aside and support one candidate over the other? Yeah, the, 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 one of the main problems here, I think, is just just uh, an ideological problem here. The reason that Republicans are like this is because they're they've based their their philosophy less on being team players and more on individualism and so-called freedom and, and and all these other sorts of things. And that's why you have these, you know, larger than life, completely arrogant figures that think that just because one, that they have money or two, that they have some sort of political renown are, you know, they have to run under all costs because they're just the best thing since sliced bread. And that's sort of the problem that people need to real that people need to realize the Democrats are communal. They, they work together. They, they, they are a team. Uh, with Republicans, it's every individual for himself, and that's why you wind up with one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, Republicans running against one establishment Republican, and then you have Dan Newhouse. Exactly, it's it's just embarrassing. And I, again, this was a winnable seat. If you look at the totals right now, it seems that basically you're looking at most likely there will be only two pro impeachment Republicans who survive this year from the House of Representatives. That's David Valadeo and Dan Newhouse. And again, in both of those cases, the Republican votes against them for opposition candidates combined was more than what the incumbents got. So they really should have lost. In both cases, they should have lost. But Republicans need to learn their lessons from this and from that California State Senate District and from what the Democrats do right about this. They need to learn their lesson. If they don't, we will continue to embarrass ourselves and lose winnable seats like this. Yeah, Lauren Culp was a Lauren Culp. You know, I mean, I I didn't think he was a great candidate. I don't know that Trump should have endorsed that candidate. He should have probably found somebody a little bit more exciting, a little bit more different, this, that, and the other. But in all honesty, Lauren Culp actually did pretty good running for the governor of Washington before 
Um, uh, somebody had told me, I, I don't know this is true because I don't know how the rules work. Somebody told me that he held the governor to a runoff. I don't think that that's correct. But um, I'd, I'd have to go look and do more research. But if that's the case, then that sounds to me like, you know, somebody that was pretty well known in the area. And he still wound up losing. It's It's got to be because of the other candidates. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's also now moving on to the other one. You've also got uh, uh, Joe Kent challenged Herrera Butler for yeah, Herrera Butler. Then is another one that should have been knocked off, considering that she voted for impeachment. Um, but as I understand it, y'all have kind of a disagreement about this uh, about this particular race. By all means, Joe, you want to take the floor? Oh, sure, I can talk about this a little bit. <laughs> I'm I'm completely neutral. By, by the way, just before y'all dive in, um, I've actually my only interaction with this district is I've worked there for the past four years in fireworks. So every summer for July 4th, I worked at a place in Windlock, which is in that district. And by the way, that area of Washington, one of the best areas along probably the best area along the West Coast, like in American Patriots, in basically a sea of blue. So it's a really really special place on the West Coast. So um, yeah, go ahead, take it away. Yeah. So. Uh... I want to I want to preface it by saying that you know for 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 the record I'm not giving the position of my employer at all when I say this I, a lot of people at my job love Joe Kent um, th- th- I think we interviewed him actually one time and and people were really excited about him but me personally I have I have I have some major 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 apprehensions about him specifically you know the amount of money that he receives from from Peter Thiel would be one of them the way that the way that he uh, calls for inclusive populism whatever the heck that's supposed to mean and the way that he doesn't like the christian identity underpinning the republican politics in the united states of america these are all things that i foresee as being major problems for uh major problem for the for, for the continued christian nationalist mu- movement in the united states of america and i believe that joe kent is the type of person that cannot be trusted not only because of his work at the cia but also because of his um because of his devotion to some of the big money Republicans that I don't particularly trust. And I think he might rely on them a bit more than he relies on Donald Trump, who I would rather them rely on. So how did Joe Kent rise to be the challenger to Herrera Butler? Like you mentioned that he worked for the CIA in the past. I know, again, I'm, I, my only interaction with district district is having worked in it. I don't know anything about the local politics. Why Joe Kent? Like, why was he the one? Cause it wasn't, as far as I know, this district wasn't split the way Newhouse's district was. Like, it really was a race between Kent and Herrera-Butler. So why him? Yeah. Like, I'm, why did he rise to the top? I mean, well, for one, he his full resume is that he is a former U.S. Army officer and former Green Beret, who his story that he really talked about that is really powerful is that his wife, uh, Shannon Kent, who served in the Navy, was killed in Syria. She was killed in a uh, bombing in 2019, and the story that he uh, – January 16, 2019. So the story he tells is that, of course, this happened January 6, 2019. This was after the original withdrawal date that President Trump set for getting all of our troops out of Syria. You know, he completely wiped ISIS off the face of the earth, and basically that led to the stabilization of Syria and the civil war there. So the situation was stable. He, he's like, we did our job. Bring the troops home now. And the chiefs of staff and the deep state, you know, the intelligence community, whatnot, the military brass, the Mark Millies and whatnot, they dragged their feet and stonewalled because, of course, they are indebted to the military industrial complex. They want to keep our boys and girls over there as long as possible to, you know, make some more money. So they did not follow his orders. They did not withdraw by the date they were supposed to be back. And as a result, 
Joe Kent's wife was killed in a suicide bombing that uh, she should not have been there. If they had honored the withdrawal date and gotten our troops out of there, she would not have been in Syria and would not have been killed. So long story short, without sounding like a conspiracy theory, you can argue that the deep state killed his wife. So he obviously has a bone to pick with the military industrial complex and the military brass. And I am I'm totally willing to believe there are some people who may have been like CIA or, you know, higher levels of the military who are willing to turn around and say, like, no, I don't support. I saw from the inside what they're doing, and I now want to fight against that. So I'm not fully prepared to dismiss Joe Kent purely because he's serving the CIA. And with a, a gut-wrenching story like that, I definitely believe if anyone has motivation to take on the deep state, it would be someone like him. But he is fully supportive of President Trump and the MAGA agenda, immigration, uh, protectionism, trade, and whatnot. Uh, compared to the other candidates, the other candidates, there were only two other Republicans. Uh, Vicki Kraft, a state representative, and a woman named Heidi St. John, who's like a motivational speaker and author. She wrote like a book on women's empowerment, I guess. So like she's basically a feminist. Um, So clearly of those three, like he seemed like the most solid candidate. And again, to take down someone like Butler, who let me be clear, by the way, she is not just one of the pro impeachment Republicans. She to me is one degree lower than Cheney and Kinzinger. She is among the worst of the worst because in the after that impeachment, she was running around to the press telling a story that she allegedly overheard a phone call between Trump and McCarthy on January 6th, Kevin McCarthy, in which she heard them like uh, orchestrating January 6th, I guess, or some she overheard some collusion or something. She was openly volunteering, like eagerly volunteering to be a witness for the Democrats in Trump's Senate impeachment trial. So she's up there. She's not just someone who came in and voted for impeachment and ran away like David Valadeo, for example. She was all in on this narrative on January 6th. And for that reason alone, just like Kinzinger and just like Cheney, she has to go. So I am from the perspective, and as I've talked about this with Joe, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Is Joe Kent perfect? No. Is he a better candidate than Butler? Absolutely he is. She has to go. I will take him any day of the week and twice on Sunday over someone like Butler. And if he turns out he's not solid, if it turns out he's not great, he could get primaried out, you know, by someone who's actually America first. But we got to take it one step at a time and we got to send a message, especially to these people of guilty of conspiring against the commander in chief over a hoax like Butler did. That's my stance. Yeah. And, and I guess the problem, I guess the problem that I have at it, is, it isn't that, you know, let's, it isn't, isn't, it isn't that, you know, don't even vote for him. I wouldn't go that far. I would say I don't really care who wins in this primary. I just I, I, I don't care who wins if her, if it's Herrera Butler or Joe Kent. One because of the ten that voted for impeachment, they're all gone. What is Jamie, you know Jamie Herrera Butler going to be the lone anti-Trump opponent that somehow manages to get him impeached in the future? She has no power, at, you know, in, in this after this upcoming 2020, uh, 2022 uh, midterm election at all whatsoever. It just it just those those sorts of things don't matter. And when I look at somebody like Joe Kent, you know, um, I don't see I see somebody who puts on the facade of what an American man is supposed to look like. You know, he's tough. He's doing all those things and stuff. But I also see a man who is not very prudent in the way that he cares for his family. I mean, I just I, I look at things like that. He Why? Why is his wife in a war zone? Why I is mean, his wife in a war? Why we, is his wife in a war zone? I mean, we do, have do we, women. Do, in the are military. we are we Christian? I know why. So you're saying you don't support women in the military? Just I'm not trying to attack. Women, you. No, 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 no. Uh, I didn't. I, I okay. support so, women. So, so, I, I support women playing. You know, being. You know, having having 
service roles in the military as far as like, you know, military hospitals, all the sorts of things, all the roles that they would have had in World War II. I do not support putting our precious, loving, beautiful women on a war zone battlefield to be cut in half by machine guns, kidnapped and raped by our, by our, you know, by, by our enemies, and then sent back to us disheveled and emotionally destroyed for the rest of their lives. Yes, I am a hundred percent against that. Okay, f- uh, fair enough. But so, and, and Joe being... Kent, and Joe, and Joe Kent, not had his wife is, is 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 getting killed by suicide bombers and being sent to the Middle East. Like, why? Why is why is a husband? And here's my thing, like, like, you know, I'm sure it's, it's, it's one of those, well, it wasn't that simple or this, that, and the other. It's like, I don't think that that is the type of man, male, masculine figure that I want representing the Republican Party. You know, um, I, I, I want to look for strong masculine leaders that have control at least over their households to the extent at which their, you know, their, their wives are not doing things that go 100% contrary to the traditional morality that conservatives profess. So basically your stance is that you think Joe Kent should have had like more like control over his wife to tell her like, no, you were not serving in the Navy, that kind of thing? I wouldn't say control. I would say, I, I, I would say, you know, you know, loving regard. I mean, and maybe, maybe he, did. who knows? I mean, we we can't pretend to know anything about their personal lives. But that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And maybe he was just married. Maybe he's just, he was just married to a, to a, a woman who didn't consider his feelings. You know, it could be that too. I wouldn't and that go that could be far. the case. I wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, but the point being, the point being, let's say maybe he did try to talk to her and say, "Oh, I don't want you going to serve in a war zone," but she wanted to to serve her country. I mean, at the end of the day, you know. Yeah, I don't support that. Uh, well, again, I think we just got to agree to disagree on that one. I mean, I, generally, yeah, I agree women shouldn't be in combat roles. Of course, there's plenty of studies explaining why that's a bad idea. And now all these efforts to, you know, make the physical fitness tests gender neutral and, you know, f- maternity flight suits. That's all garbage. Obviously, no, women shouldn't be serving in combat roles. I agree with you on that one. But they they are allowed to for the time being. So, I mean, it's until so and unless that's changed. Be, oh, sorry, my question ahead. to Joe Kent would probably be if uh, – so from what, what y'all heard about his position on why he decided to run – is his position that he opposes Biden in Biden's stance on Afghanistan because he didn't stick to Trump's original withdrawal date? Is that the only the only issue he had, or does he oppose all military intervention in the Middle East completely? Because what I noticed a lot of Republicans doing is they were nitpicking Biden for botching the withdrawal and delaying the withdrawal, but they were still holding on to the belief that we should intervene in the world and be the world's police force. Like, what was his foreign policy like? Like, was it full-on Ron Paul, or was it more like Rand Paul? I think he's generally anti-intervention, again, given what happened to his wife. I think he very much, again, you know, endorsed by President Trump, he supports an America first agenda of, you know, focusing on our problems first and foremost, like immigration and whatnot. No, I see no evidence to suggest that he is gung-ho intervention, you know, like a Nikki Haley or anything like that. At least yeah, not from what I see. I don't see him supporting. Yeah, I don't agree. I don't agree that he's 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 pushing forward an America First agenda at all. His agenda seems actually more Marxist than it does anything in, in else. Which and, by, and by and and by Marxist, I don't mean obviously. I don't mean like cultural Marxism. Obviously, I think that he would be opposed to gay marriage and stuff like that. Um, and I think he would be opposed to uh, uh, you know feminism some some of the prospects of feminism apparently not all of them like women in would, he, would he though because inclusive but, populism would welcome gay marriage oh i know it would 
I know. So, I mean, I, I, do, do we really I don't know, know if he would be opposed I, to I don't marriage? No, no. I, well, here's 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 one of my questions about that. That was a bad example, by the way. Um, here's here's one of the things I don't know about that is that you know he's got he's he's one of the, he's one of those teal guys, you know, and a lot of the teal guys is with every single person that's going and going to be taking millions and millions of dollars from Peter Thiel to win their campaigns in these crucial races. Well, Peter Thiel has a husband. Um, yeah. What what happens? What hap- What happens if the Supreme Court overturns Obergefell? And then we and, 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 you know, and we have a situation where we're going to permanently codify uh, gay marriage into uh, the Constitution as an amendment or something. like If that. I may, because you mentioned that's another one of your problems is because so we've agreed to disagree on the whole the thing with his wife serving the military. And moving on to this point, then the whole Teal thing, Peter Teal. Yeah, of course, yes, he's gay. He, he's in a quote unquote gay marriage. But the point is, he is one of the very few republican billionaires who is actually doing more for the right certainly for the trump for the america first right then certainly then you know the cokes or most of the establishment billionaires and you look at the candidates he's supported look at you know blake masters and jd vance and by the way i i courtesy of our friend wikipedia i had to point out uh the guy you sang the praises of just a little while ago john gibbs was also endorsed by peter Thiel. so are, are we going to say that like you know anyone who's endorsed by peter Thiel is automatically sus i think that's kind of a blanket generalization if i'm being honest no, I didn't say I didn't say that either. I didn't say anybody endorsed by him is. But when when you have these party, you know, the, these these favorites by him that take millions and millions and millions of dollars from him, there's something to be wary about, especially when they start using terms like inclusive populism. Um, that's why you're right with gay marriage being a bad thing, because I could see him supporting something like that. You know, he's not interested in Christian nationalism. He's not interested in upholding the Christian core of the United States of America. He's talking more about like a workers like like a workers unite and uprising against the the, the political ruling class of the country that's marxism well no i don't no, mind no, there no. i hold on hold on, hold on. i don't <laughs> mind there being i don't mind there being i don't mind there being you know uh, a a, cla- a clash between the classes if the elite ruling class is evil or anything along which it you know, is along those lines sure but along those lines necessarily but that just means i want them replaced with elites that are good i don't want to get rid of elites and republicans and conservatives don't want to get rid of the leaks. The Republicans are the only people left in the country that actually believe in hierarchical structure and that there should be levels of authority that arise, that, you know, that, that arise. You know, when you're looking at when you're just talking about workers revolution and stuff like, like Joe Kent is like, that's just that's just blanket Marxism. It's not based on anything at all, at least with Christian nationalism. It's based on a sound doctrine of morality that's existed for thousands of years. But American workers overall, when we talk about American workers, I think we can agree we're generally talking about the best backbone of the United States, the white working class, right? The middle class, the Rust Belt, the ones that were the backbone of the Democratic Party for many years and now are the backbone of the Trump coalition. Um, I'm sure you can attest, to, Joe, that many working class voters in the Rust Belt, union members and whatnot, you know, former auto workers, factory workers, they generally lean socially conservative, right? You know, they're re- religious for the most part. They support gun rights. They're pro-life, et cetera, et cetera. If that is the working class that is preparing to revolt against the elite, like the January 6th protesters. The overwhelming majority of January 6th protesters were middle Americans, working class Americans from the Rust Belt, from rural America, flyover country as it's called, and they rebelled against the elites for a few glorious hours. That is the kind of workers' revolution against an evil entrenched elite that I think we should see happening. So yeah, I support that rhetoric. It should be be happening. 
it should be happening. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be happening. Well, what I'm saying is, is that that's not the, that's not the core of it. Well, because real quick, you mentioned you know saying that like oh talking about workers you know revolution that's Marxist rhetoric. That to me is exactly this reminds me of a story I think I've told in the podcast before way back in 2016 when Trump was running for the nomination. The Daily Wire, a guy named Hank Berrien, who still writes for them by the way, he wrote a whole article reacting to Trump giving a speech on the campaign trail where he said uh, the key words was he used is that the GOP should become a party of the American worker. And Hank Berry and Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's website, wrote a whole article frothing in the mouth like Trump ripped off his mask and revealed that he's really just Bernie Sanders. He used the word workers. This is socialism. This is Marxism. It's kind of the same thing that I'm hearing here because honestly – the American no, it's not because no, it's not because I'm not basing it on some on some uh, on some pseudo pseudo liberal you know understanding between this you know uh, all religions are the same sort of sort of co- coexistent thing that the Daily Wire would be promoting. I'm actually asking for it to be based on sound tradition and the culture in which this country derived itself from. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not ta- I, like, like I said, I'm not trying to base it off of anything, li- anything revolving around liberalism. I'm talking about building it around hierarchy and authority and the and, and, and the religion that created this culture, the philosophy that created this culture in which there is depth and identity rooted inside of it. There's no identity attributed to a worker. A worker could be in workers can be in completely different conditions from one another. However, when it comes to matters of faith, that's one thing that everybody can get behind as part of who they are. So it sounds like if you've got a populist who doesn't describe himself as an inclusive populist who grounds his morality in Christianity, who grounds his politics in Christianity, if that politician were to then talk about workers rising up and overthrowing the elite, you would trust him because he's grounded in Christianity. Am I am I understanding that correctly? You now understand why I like John Gibbs. <laughs> okay. uh, that makes sense. Then. Okay. Yeah, and I totally uh, get it. I, I get, of course, because yes, America is fundamentally a Christian nation. I talked about this in my speech in California earlier this year that the whole you know rhetoric of Christians trying to take over the country. I'm like, excuse me, this was already our nation to begin with. Thank you very much. So no, I totally get it, and I support Christian nationalism. But the point is that we shouldn't let again should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and when we are up against an evil enemy right now like this deep state this critical race theory transgenderism bs that we are seeing every single day being promoted being taught to children being spread at our embassies overseas that blm and those ugly triangular pride flags are being flown at our middle eastern embassies when that is the elite we are up against we need all the allies we can get is it ideal that someone like peter Thiel, who is gay is you know is basically the best, second best billionaire on the right right now no it's not ideal but if he is one of the only people helping put forward these base candidates again jd vance blake masters solid candidates who don't support mitch mcconnell who are who support president trump and that's one of the thing i got to bring back to as well what you said is you said these candidates are indebted to peter Thiel because they've received money from him yes financially speaking that is true and jacob and i have acknowledged this that a huge reason why vance and masters have were able to do so well is because they both got 10 million from teal but at the end of the day joe we all know it was not the teal funding that put these candidates over the line and it's not the teal funding that put kent over the line jd vance was in third and fourth place in the polls before a, a certain announcement blake masters was in third maybe even fourth place in the polls before a certain announcement it was not peter teal that put these candidates over the over the line and it was not peter teal that put joe kent that, over the line it was Donald Trump and his endorsement. So if they get into Congress, they are ultimately going to be much more indebted to Trump 
than they will be to Peter Thiel because they will be known as the Trump-endorsed candidates who won these key races and beat these incumbents. So to argue that like ultimately they're more beholden to Peter Thiel and his gay marriage agenda than to Donald Trump and his America First agenda, I think is honestly just inaccurate. Like, yeah, big money is a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Here's the problem. What we're trying to do here in the United States of America is spearhead a Christian ideological resurgence in the United States of America. And when you're trying to have that resurgence and you're trying to make that happen, the leading monetary figure behind it cannot be somebody who fundamentally rejects a core teaching of that faith and moves forward with it. What, what's going to happen is every single one of these candidates is going to be confronted with the question, do I want my Peter Thiel money or do I want to stand up for the Christian principles in which I believe in? I don't even know if Joe Kent is a Christian. I'm not necessarily sure. I haven't heard him speak much on faith. But when I look at people like like uh, like, like Blake Masters, I look at people like um, like uh, J.D. Vance. Uh, JD Vance yeah, J, like J.D. Vance. I don't fully trust them either. I mean, I do hope that they are good. I hope they are who they say I are, say they are. I think Blake Masters is more likely than J.D. Vance, that they, that, that they are everything that they profess themselves to be. But when I look at these people, they get 10 million, you know, they get 10 million from Peter Thiel. They start running these campaigns. They start becoming Christians. When four years ago, Blake Masters was a libertarian that was talking about borders, open borders, and how J.D. Vance didn't put, didn't even put down on his Twitter bio that he was a, that he was a Christian until two months before he ran his campaign. He's affiliated with the World Economic Forum. Both of these guys were venture capitalists. Blake Masters specifically worked under Peter Thiel for a very long period of time. These are things to be suspicious of on a reasonable basis. I'm not saying they are any of these things. What I am saying is that if this gay marriage thing goes about, especially with the with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which the the linear the linear uh, the the linear uh, understanding of the, the court the court's understanding of substantive due process is what caused this Dobbs ruling is also related to Obergefell, which is related to gay marriage, which means that they're going to have to have that discussion. And where is Peter Thiel going to fall on that side? We know he's a man who is married to a man. And they're going to be confronted with the decision to say, okay, well, I'm going to vote against, I want to vote against gay marriage because I'm a Christian or or maybe they never were Christians. I mean, I guess that's obviously always the possibility as well. I don't know. But if they do, they're going to be confronted. Do I vote on my Christian principles? Do I vote America first when Donald Trump support but Donald Trump supports gay marriage and Peter Thiel gave me $12 million, $10 million to run my campaign? That call is going to come from Thiel at one point and they're all going to be confronted with that decision. That is not a direction that I want to see the Republican Party go in. That's not a scenario that I want to have our best candidates in in the future. We should be looking for something better. And if a guy like Joe Kent loses because he's because he uses terms like inclusive populism and wants to include homosexuality and sodomy in the conservative movement, then you know what? I don't care if he wins or loses. I hope he loses in in one sense because I hope what we learned our lesson because we need to learn our lesson that we cannot be running people that do not espouse the values, the core values that our party is a part of. And it's that simple. You cannot have things that way. And again, well, I, I cutting think in, cutting in real quick, that's creating uh, a new that's creating a new establishment that's going to do the same thing. Well, yeah, we're Christians, but we don't you know, we don't want to go too far on this because it might hurt us in the polls. No, we need to be unashamed of exactly who we are. We need to inspire a generation of young people to be radical, you know, radical, mischievous, 
pro-Christian nationalists that are going to move and shake every single cultural discussion that people have. You need to make Christian morals inescapable from the discussion in everyday life in this country. And until that happens, the Overton window will continue doing what it's been doing for the past 40 years, which is going towards nothing. Well, only thing we're conserving is the liberalism of five years ago. I'm done with that. Yeah, well, again, that was a that was a very lively discussion, Joe. I think the ultimate end result is you and I will have to agree to disagree on a variety of these things. You know, perfect being the enemy of the good versus, you know, these good Christian morals, you know, and you talk about events years down the road like the overturning of Obergefell. My my stance on that is, you know, uh, as I like to say, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. You know, that's a conflict that will probably happen not for another five years or so, give or take. All right. If there's anything else, by the way, you want to say, Joe, if there's anything you want to plug on your behalf, social media, uh, where we can find you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of your affiliations that you already have. Feel free to tell our audience where people can find you and follow your work. Sure. Yeah. You can follow me at churchmilitant.com. You can watch our evening news broadcast every night at 7 p.m. Eastern time at churchmilitant.com. You can watch it on our YouTube channel at Church Militant. Uh, just do a search in the search bar for Church Militant and you can find it. Uh, you can also watch our commentary show, The Vortex, by our wonderful senior executive producer, Michael Voris. And uh, you'll be able to check out all of my work. All right. I, I know you mentioned you sent me a, a report you guys have done on voter fraud in 2020. That was very well done. I'll, just for mentioning it, I'll go ahead and throw a link to that in the description below so you guys can check it out. It was very comprehensive. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining us and for helping in our election coverage here. Again, a a round of very spicy primaries, even in the unlikeliest of places like blue states. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of websites and social media platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to support the show as you always do, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.